You're listening to Plenary Session. Welcome to today's bonus episode. You're going to hear a lecture I gave to the National Breast Cancer Coalition, a patient advocacy group for patients with breast cancer. This is a lecture about clinical trial endpoints, about drug approval, about some of the perverse incentives in oncology. And I gave it to this audience last week. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Two points of clarification. First, from David Steensma, the Dana-Farber hematologist-oncologist, who hopefully will be on this podcast someday. This is about a comment made uh, by Chadi Naban and I about um, ASH abstracts. So apparently, for the last couple of years, ASH has blinded reviewers to the identity of the abstract authors. So that is good, and we did allude to that subject. Um, I do think that blinding reviewers to paper authors is a lot more difficult, uh, in part because uh, people tend to cite their own work, which kind of betrays who they are. But at least for abstracts, it's really doable and uh, I commend Ash for doing that. Second, from Emerson Chen, who's the chief fellow here at OHSU. Emerson also wanted to point out that PROs have been used a little bit more broadly than what I and Chadi said on the podcast. For instance, siltuximab for Castleman disease, I-131 for paraganglioma, and several AML drugs that decrease transfusion dependence, such as LEN and 5Q-, all have PROs in the package insert. So that's why I really like Emerson Chen, because he is a very knowledgeable person who is doing a lot of the work um, with me in the regulatory space. And he's going to be on this podcast soon to talk about his new paper in the very near future. That's a paper I allude to in this discussion, but I still have to keep pretty secret. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed today's lecture. The audio quality is a bit limited, so I hope you forgive us. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to talk to you today about endpoints, use of surrogates for drug approval, and cancer drugs. In terms of disclosure, I'm the author of this book, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And that is why I'm very rich. <laughs> My work is funded by this nonprofit foundation, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, doing a lot of important funding in this space. And I host this podcast plenary session, which is on the iTunes store or on SoundCloud. And I'm at that handle on Twitter. I think before we start, I just wanted to put this talk in context by talking about a few things. One, talk about precious materials. I saw this article in Business Insider about the 19 most expensive substances on Earth. So there's gold, about $40 a gram. There is rhino horn sold on the black market at $55 a gram. There's plutonium, which is about $4,000 a gram. Then there's the hematology-oncology drug ecolizumab, which is $26,000 per gram. There are diamonds at $65,000 per gram. Uh, enriched Californium, $27 million a gram. 
and CAR T cells, which is a new emerging class of cancer treatment, which per gram comes out to over a billion dollars. But I think we can't forget how high the price of these medications is, and that should give us some context for how to think about them. This is a graph we put together a few years ago for Nature Reviews. The blue line shows you the price for one month of cancer drug treatment for a new drug launched between 75 and 79, uh, 1980 to 84. So year by year, the launch price of new cancer drugs. That's the blue line. Red line shows you the median monthly household income in this country over time. What you see here is that even though the median household income has really stagnated in this country, wages haven't changed that much, the price of an anti-cancer drug, what was once a few hundred dollars per month of treatment, is now routinely in excess of $10,000. And this kind of shift happened around the late 1990s with the rise of Taxol, first blockbuster anti-cancer drug. So cancer drugs are clearly much more unaffordable than they once were. And then the other piece of context I want to put this talk in is, is sort of the sober reality of cancer drugs. Talk so much about the transformational drugs like Perceptin, um, like Imatinib, drugs that really sort of revolutionize the treatment of a disease. But we forget that the average cancer drug that comes to market may not be so good. So this is an analysis of 71 consecutive drugs approved for solid cancers by FOHO and colleagues in JAMA Otolaryngology. What it shows is 71 drugs from 2002 to 2014 that were approved in a row. He's showing you the median improvement in progression-free survival, top bar, and overall survival, the bottom bar, over time. And when the bars are missing, that means we just simply don't know if the drug improves progression-free survival or overall survival. What he shows here is that the median is 2.5 and 2.1 months. Even though we focus, I think, a great deal about the transformational drugs, I don't think we can forget the fact that the average cancer drug coming to market offers a modest or marginal benefit to patients, and it's probably fair to say is not a transformational drug, probably fair to say is not a game changer. The average drug seems not to be. So I guess in this talk, in the time I have with you today, I was going to talk to you a little bit about what are the endpoints used for approval. By that I mean you know, when you run a clinical trial, what are the sorts of things they're looking at that they will consider for drug approval? What is the relationship between these often surrogate endpoints and overall survival or quality of life? Then I want to present a little thought experiment about how I think the regulatory system, how lax it's become, and finally some solutions. I think the two most common classes of endpoints used for drug approval are delaying the time to progression or something like progression-free survival or causing responses for cancer. Here I've used some spheres to depict what do we mean by progression and what do we mean by response. So a response means, a response rate is basically if you give a drug to 100 people, what percent of people have tumors that shrink more than 30%? That's shown here. The percent of people whose cancer goes from this size, this size. Um, this is the response rate. Now, why is this 70%? Why isn't it, um, you know, 60% or 50%? The answer is it was picked for arbitrary reasons. Patients don't necessarily feel better from 71% to 69%. There's not something magical that happens. You don't suddenly feel better. So we can't forget that a response is tumors shrinking beyond an arbitrary threshold. Similarly, progression. Progression means 20% growth from the smallest a tumor ever was. The tumor never shrinks, as in the top 
set of figures, this is what we mean by progressive disease. If your tumor shrinks initially, then progression is, you know, it could still be smaller than the original tumor size, but still count as progression. So why, why is it 20% from the smallest amount? Do people feel suddenly bad at 21% and they felt wonderful at 19%? The answer is, again, no. It is an arbitrary number that was picked for mostly operational reasons because we could tell these differences apart, not picked for good reason. So why is this very important to know? I think it's important to know that it is arbitrary, and that's why it's a surrogate endpoint, because it's so easy to believe that why, who wouldn't want their cancer to shrink and who wouldn't want to delay the time until cancer gets bigger. But these are arbitrary line percentage changes we've drawn to count progression or response, and that's why they don't always go hand-in-hand hand with how people feel. Um, so where do these definitions come from? I alluded to this, but really, once upon a time in the 1970s, um, this is sort of a story that's been told, but there's you know some basis for this. Uh, this Mayo Clinic oncologist, Charles Mortel, had a dinner party. At the dinner party, he brought some marbles, and he rolled out some foam rubber, and he asked the 16 oncologists in the room to use their tool of choice to measure the difference between these marbles, how, which marbles are bigger than which marbles. And he picked the changes that led to the current response criteria from when two people could reliably distinguish a marble as bigger than another marble under foam rubber on a dining table. So I guess I tell this story only to point out this is a very sort of arbitrary historical story that's led to the response criteria, and it wasn't picked for good reasons. And unfortunately, all 16 oncologists back in 1976 were men back in those days. So when the FDA approves cancer drugs, they do it really on the basis of three reasons, as shown in this figure. Um, a third of it is response rate. So a third of it is we gave a drug to 100 people, and 33% of them had tumor shrinking more than 30%. A third of it is delaying the time until progression-free survival which is either the time until the tumors progressed or the patient passed away, whichever came first, which in most cancers tends to be the progression event. And then a the third are drugs that are approved on the basis of overall survival. Overall survival is less and less popular with each passing year. This is a paper by Booth and colleagues from Kingston, Ontario. It shows that from 1995 to 2004, and it's a little hard to hear, so you'll have to you can look this paper up later. But from 1995 to 2004, if you look at randomized clinical trials in cancer medicine, about 50% of them used overall survival as the endpoint. But between 2005 and 2010, that had declined to just about a third. The change in endpoint has gone hand-in-hand -hand with increased industry support for randomized controlled trials in cancer medicine, shown on the left. As the proportion of cancer trials with industry funding has grown, the endpoints have switched to surrogate endpoints, and the sample size of studies has grown. And Booth tries to connect this into, you know, one story in his paper. And, and what's, the, what's the real story here is that, you know, overall survival, how long somebody lives, is something that inherently matters to people. All things being equal, we want to live as long and rich a life as possible. But progression-free survival is something that is an arbitrary, arbitrary threshold, and it, and it it often doesn't correlate with quality of life or, or survival, but it's easy to measure and it can be improved upon um, even when you may not get survival benefits. And so from the industry standpoint, you run very large trials with progression-free survival as the endpoint, you may get more successes, you may get more drugs to market, you may make a lot of money, but it's unclear if you will always make people better off as a result. 
So, you may wonder, what is the relationship between drugs that shrink tumors, drugs that delay progression, and improving overall survival? In fact, there is some relationship, right? Because it's not like there's no relationship at all. There's some relationship. So what is that relationship? So how do, you, how do we study these relationships? We've done this kind of work where we've kind of looked at these relationships in every single tumor type. How, do, how does one study this? Imagine in metastatic breast cancer, there were two randomized trials of cancer drugs. One of them improved progression-free survival from three and a half months to six and a half months, and it improved overall survival from 18 months to 21 months. Another trial improved survival from 1 to 2 and survival and overall survival from 12 to 13. The way you sort of study how reliable is PFS in predicting survival is you plot this change in progression-free survival, 3 and 3 and 1 and 1, and you plot the change in overall survival on the other axis. And then you perform linear regression, and you ask how closely do those dots fall on that line. And if the dots really cluster along the line, that's telling you that, well, Changes in progression-free survival really do predict changes in overall survival. It is a reliable surrogate endpoint. I can put a lot of stock in it. I can trust it. But if those dots are scattered around the line, nowhere close to the line, then the answer is, well, progression-free survival doesn't capture most of survival changes. So, lots of people have done this type of study in many, many tumor types, and we looked through all of them, and just last week we looked at it even more broadly, um, and we now find like close to 100 such studies in many, many different cancers. And we extracted the, how close those dots clustered on the line from all of these studies, and we, we summarize it here. What we find is for people with metastatic tumors, which is most drug approvals, the majority of correlations are low quality. Um, they are, I don't want to get into the technical cutoffs, but there is a lot about survival that is not captured in the surrogate endpoint. And regulatory agencies like the German ICWIG would say they are not suitable for regulatory approval. That's the majority of these correlations. There are a few that are high and nobody can, you know, so there are some situations where they are good predictors. Now, progression-free survival in metastatic breast cancer, unfortunately, is over here. Um, in the adjuvant setting, um, there's a lot better um, outcomes. Adjuvant means you've surgically removed all the tumor and you're giving a drug to prevent recurrence. And there it looks like delaying recurrence really does improve survival, although this is driven by colon and lung and head and neck. I think breast cancer is actually over here, unfortunately. In breast cancer, it is um, a complex disease that's often hormone receptor positive, and for that reason, these relationships um, don't appear to be um, as strong as you might see in some other cancer types. And, you know, that's just simply the nature of, of the biology. Um, so while we wish we could have a perfect surrogate endpoint in every situation, it really would, you know, make things easier. When surrogate endpoints only have low correlation with what you care about, then you may approve many, many drugs that turn out not to improve survival and not to improve quality of life. We talk a lot about PATH-CR in breast cancer. These bottom two graphs are that exact same um, kind of plot that I showed you earlier for the relationship between PATH-CR and recurrence on the left and survival on the right. Now, I said if the dots cluster close to the line, um, that's a good correlation, and you'd like to see a nice slope, that line going from, you know, lower left to upper right. And you can see here right now that actually the dots have almost no correlation with that line at all. In fact, it's really sort of like random dots. There is almost no relationship between improving PATH-CR and improving overall survival in clinical trials. 
Now, that doesn't mean PAPCR isn't prognostic. You know, women who achieve PAPCR and neoadjuvant therapy do better than women who don't. But what it means is that drugs that increase that PAPCR rate, they don't seem to be better drugs on average. Those are two kind of philosophically different questions that often get confused. So I think the key figure here is the bottom, and I think that's kind of a very sobering um, dots that aren't close to that line at all. What about progression-free survival and quality of life? Here it is. I think Kovics and colleagues in JAM Internal Medicine very recently, and you can see here again, there's not really a great correlation between drugs that improve progression-free survival and drugs that improve quality of life. So if progression-free survival doesn't tell you if a drug will improve your overall survival, and if progression-free survival doesn't tell you if a drug improves your quality of life, well, what does progression-free survival tell you? It tells you if you delayed the tumor growth more than 20% from the smallest the tumors ever were on a CAT scan, but it doesn't really tell you about how well someone feels or how long they live. That's why it's a surrogate endpoint. Surrogate endpoint is an endpoint a patient didn't know matter until a doctor told them that it mattered. Um, it's an endpoint that patients don't feel necessarily, but that we hope will predict endpoints that actually matter. In the case of cancer, you know, progression-free survival is measurable, but it really doesn't have a great correlation. And, you know, I like to say, having measured many of these scans, um, tumors on scan, that, you know, people think measuring a tumor on a scan is like measuring your height. Um, but I think it's more like measuring the width of a cloud, you know, between your fingers. There's a little bit of ambiguity to it. You look, you know, you move your finger a little bit, and the cloud's bigger, the cloud's smaller. Where does the cloud end? That's kind of what a tumor looks like on scan sometimes not always very clear where, where it ends, and different people will take different measurements, and, and that's been shown a lot in the literature. And that might be part of the reason why the correlation isn't as good as we would hope. So it would be okay if we approved lots of drugs based on surrogates. Right now we're approving two-thirds of drugs based on surrogates, but that would be okay if a few years later on the market they showed that they actually improve survival or they actually improve quality of life. The answer is they don't do that. We looked at 36 drugs that were approved on the basis of a surrogate endpoint, and we followed them on the market four and a half years later in this JAM Internal Medicine paper. And what we found was only five out of 36 drugs later improved survival. The majority either didn't improve survival, or they had never even reported their survival results in literature. And honestly, I don't know what's worse, not improving survival or not telling people what happened. Tracy Ruffin colleagues took this a step further in JAM Internal Medicine, and they looked to see how many of these drugs without a survival benefit improve quality of life. And the answer was just one of them made quality of life better. Four of them had mixed quality of life results, meaning some scores got better, but other scores got worse. A bunch of them had no difference or were worse, and then a bunch of them had no evidence at all. So, you know, I think if we engage in this social bargain, that we will approve drugs based on provisional measures, but later on the market you have to show they actually improve what people care about, I would say that bargain is being broken every day because we're not doing those post-marketing studies in an adequate fashion. I think it's interesting. I heard that there was a webinar on the cyclin 4 6 kinase inhibitors, um, which improve progression-free survival, but unfortunately, despite the fact there are at least three FDA-approved agents that at least five or six randomized control trials, not a single clinical trial has shown an improvement in overall survival to date. This is the recent Aloma 3 study results that showed OS endpoint has not yet been met. Um, so we still don't have clear evidence 
that these drugs improve overall survival, despite, you know, rather impressive improvements in progression-free survival. Something people say, which I find a bit strange, is that, well, the reason our PFS benefit didn't translate to survival benefit is because it was confounded by subsequent therapies. You know, we had a benefit, but then people went on to use a bunch of other active drugs against the cancer, and the overall survival is the same. But here I've shown this sort of theory with, this, with these arrows. And I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, if, if you have a drug that does what the blue arrow does to the first red arrow, um, and at the, end of the, at the end of it all, there's no improvement in survival, I guess I, I find it very difficult to say that drug is really transformational because you could have achieved the exact same survival without having that drug. In the case of these cyclin 4-6 inhibitors, that would mean with less toxicity because instead of getting the CD4-6 inhibitor, a person would have gotten hormone therapy alone, which has much less toxicity. Um, and if you have the same overall survival, it's not intuitively clear to me that the top set of arrows is better than the bottom because in the top set, what that must mean is, you know, some of these other drugs in later, this, you're getting a lot less benefit in the third line than this person over here. So, you know, it's not like every step is equally, equally good. There's a price you're paying for this benefit up front. And there must be, otherwise survival would be improved. So again, here I just want to remind us that, um, you know, there are transformational drugs, but we just can't forget that the average drug is really modest. And I think the situation is a little bit worse than even that modest benefit, and here's why. Who do we test these drugs in? Although we've paid a lot of lip service to improving clinical trials and making them look more like average Americans, we still do a very poor job of that. This is data from the FDA. This bar graph shows what percent of American cancer patients are over the age of 65, 70, 75. Those are the tall bars. And then what percent of people on registration studies to the U.S. FDA are over the age of 65, 70, 75? And what you see here is that cancer is a disease of the elderly. Over 50% of people are over the age of 65 with cancer in America. They account for only about a third of patients on clinical trials. So in other words, we study drugs in people who are younger than the average person in America, have less medical problems with the average person in America. Then you factor in that these drugs... They're not very mild drugs. They're often, you know, difficult drugs, toxic drugs with real side effects. And then you start to extrapolate that information to older people who are frailer, who maybe may not be able to take the full dose of the drug. And you start to wonder, well, will the drug work equally well? The 2.1-month benefit that I showed, that's the drugs in these super fit people who are younger. But what is the benefit in average Americans who may be older and frailer? Is it still 2.1 months, or is it eroded? I'll come back to that bone mass question, but I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, bone mass are very difficult to um, measure, and so, you know, this is a good point about surrogate endpoints. There's a downside to surrogate endpoints, because if you ran clinical trials and the endpoint was survival, you could take anybody with that disease and put them in the trial, and there will be no issues, and the trial will be very useful and give information. But if one of the endpoints in your clinical trial is response rate, you need patients to have disease in the organs or the lymph nodes so you can measure that. And so some of these trials will exclude patients, as Sandra Spivy points out, with bone metastases because those are notoriously difficult to measure. 
And so in an effort to use surrogates to speed drug to market, what you're doing is you're excluding some people whose biology of the disease may be a little bit different, and the information you get may not apply equally to those people. So I think it's a very astute question, and um, maybe we can talk more about it later. Okay, so back to this point. So I think uh, I was briefed before that everyone here knows a lot more um, uh, than, than maybe what I had targeted. So I, here I wanted to explain what a Kaplan-Meier curve is, but I think you all know that. Um, so let me just give you one example of this issue of um, clinical trials run in very young and fit people. This is serafinib in liver cancer. Uh, so Tracy was asking, if the experimental drug works less well in older people, doesn't the standard of care drugs also work less well? So the difference should approximately be the same. I, I think this example will really hit on that question. So, um, so take a look at this. So because both things are true, but the thing is that what happens to the difference? It may be the same, like, in terms of a relative risk or hazard ratio, but in terms of absolute difference, it will shrink. You'll see this here. So this is a randomized trial of serafinib versus placebo in metastatic or unresectable liver cancer. Liver cancer is a very difficult cancer. Um, it has, um, as you can see here, the median survival of people taking placebo was eight months in this clinical trial, which is, you know, simply not good enough um, for somebody suffering from liver cancer. It's a, a fatal disease, and it's a very difficult disease. And for many years, we had nothing that could improve outcomes in liver cancer, and it was a very, very tough time. Then in 2008, we had this drug come along, and it improved median survival from 8 months to 11 months. And this got, you know, like standing ovations at, like, national meetings. This was, like, heralded as, like, a, a breakthrough. Um, but here's what the challenge is. The patients on this clinical trial are younger than the average cancer patient, and they have fewer comorbidities and have really good liver function, which is not the same as a lot of patients that, you know, we all see. And I started giving serafinib to patients, and I would have them come to me and throw this at me and say, this is an awful drug, and I never want to take it again, after just a few doses. And I, I had, there's a disconnect between what I was experiencing in this clinical trial. And then Stacey Duke-Zena and Hannah Sanoff from North Carolina, they said, let's study this drug in Medicare recipients who are over the age of 65, who, you know, are the people who actually have liver cancer because it's a disease of the elderly. And this is what they found. This is the median survival with serafinib, which now is four point some months, and the median survival with no treatment at all among patients who are propensity score matched is the red. And here, let me put this all together. This is it all together. So you have a drug that in the clinical trial population had a modest or marginal benefit here from 8 to 11. But in the real world, people taking the active drug lived less than half as long as people taking sugar pill in the clinical trial. That's how different the real world patients are from the clinical trial patients. While even when taking the drug that's effective, they live half as long. This is, you know, this really tells you that you have really picked, you know, really people who are not representative here. And here's that point about difference. Well, you know, the experimental drug, it may work less well, of course, but the difference should be the same. And I think, you know, some statistician will be able to point out that there probably is that difference may be preserved as like a, you know, as a hazard ratio, it may be preserved. But look at the absolute differences. They're actually, it's, it's getting so small, you can't even tell these, these lines apart. So are people really benefiting from a drug that causes hand-foot syndrome, that causes all these problems, if this is what's actually going on in the real world on the left? So I think this is the crux of the issue. 2.1 months in an ideal patient population, that may be 2.1 hours in the real population. And maybe, maybe not even that, because the side effects are so much worse, they, like, swamp out any benefit the drug has. For this reason, we wrote this article in JAMA Oncology, and we called it, 
Overall survival in cancer drug trials, that's a new surrogate endpoint. It's a surrogate endpoint for overall survival in the real world. And so what we argue is that the purpose of U.S. drug regulation is to approve drugs that improve outcomes for U.S. patients. Most cancer drugs have marginal benefits, as I showed you, and a marginal drug in an ideal population may have no benefit in the actual American population um, or, you know, that kind of graphnib-like sliver of benefit, and survival in trials may just be a surrogate for survival in the real world. What's the solution? The solution is, as I think Sandra alluded to, you know, why are people with bone meth getting excluded from trials? Why are patients with brain meth getting excluded from trials? And why are older, frailer patients getting excluded when we want to take this trial and use it in all these patients at the end of the day? We need to do trials in these patients. We need trials that look like actual Americans. Um, and we need trials that are run in the community setting. And we need, you know, the average doctor seeing a patient in South Dakota should be able to put a patient on trials to answer these questions. Um, trials, I think, should be the rule and not the exception, and, and there's some things we can do to improve this situation. But if we run trials in only the patients who are, you know, who could run a marathon, we have to ask ourselves if that information could be, is really fair to be used for everyone else. So I wanted to end with a little thought experiment, and this is something we, we wrote about, and it's a little provocative, but you should know that in some fields of medicine, the historical standard was two clinical trials to bring a drug to market, like you wanted to show that the drug worked in two sort of different settings. But in oncology, it's always been one clinical trial with a p-value smaller than 0.05, which is just like response rate and PFS is an arbitrarily chosen line in the sand. And it doesn't really matter if you improve survival or progression-free survival. The FDA is often willing to accept both. And it doesn't really matter if there are many clinical trials, and some are positive and some are negative. We saw with sunitinib in kidney cancer in the adjuvant setting, there were two clinical trials. One was negative, one was positive, but the drug still got approved, even though those two trials kind of contradicted each other. So all you need is one clinical trial. It doesn't matter if there are other negative trials, and you just need that p-value. And it doesn't matter if the magnitude of the benefit is very small. So this is neratinib versus placebo um, in HER2 receptor-positive breast cancer in the adjuvant setting. And... You know, there's a difference between these two groups, but it is a very difficult to see difference. It's a very, very small difference. Um, and this is invasive disease-free survival, which is a surrogate endpoint for overall survival that actually has a, a weaker correlation. Um, and this is the kind of benefit. We're running trials of 2,800 women. Lots of people participate so that there's statistical power to tell that these two curves are, are separate. You ran this trial with 300 women. These curves would look like this, but it wouldn't have the statistical power to detect a difference, I would, I, would, I would bet. I could crunch the number, but I would bet. I would argue that this is not good enough for women with breast cancer. What could you do differently? Yes, I would say you could, one, first come up with a risk score that separated the women who are likely to have invasive disease um, versus those who aren't. Then you would take your drug in just the high-risk women and test that, and then you want to look for really sort of bigger differences. Um, I don't think we, we should be satisfied with like half of, you know, with 1% improvements in invasive disease-free survival. I think we have to do better than this. Um, the reason I say that is it's not just that, that like, it's not that the, if the drug had no side effects, okay, then it would be great, and if the drug was very cheap, but it's a very, very toxic drug. In this trial, grade 3, 4 diarrhea, 41% versus 2% on placebo. What is grade 3-4 diarrhea? It's an increase in seven stools per day over baseline. 
for diarrhea requiring IV fluids, hospitalization, or interfering with ADLs. I think a lot of people, maybe even on this webinar, may attest to the fact that, you know, if you have diarrhea, if you have to go to the bathroom eight times a day, that is a life-altering event. Um, your whole life is, is changed, and you have to think about where the next restroom is every day of your life. When you set out from home, where are you going to go next? Where's the next restroom? The next restroom. You plan out all your restrooms. Um, this is a drug taken daily for a year. Uh, this is why so many of these cancer drugs are just not tolerable. Um, uh, you can't have a person, you know, sort of plan their whole life around going to restroom to restroom to restroom. You can't do anything else. And so a lot of patients really find this disabling and, and will no, no, we'll just simply not take the pill if this is the kind of side effects we're dealing with. Um, these side effects for this little benefit, I think this, this is not, this is not really a good trade-off. Um, and, you know, we have to do better. We have to develop better drugs. I mean, that's just what I think about when I look at that. Um, here I show you, these are three Kaplan-Meier curves um, from clinical trials. Um, what's the provocative thing here? One of these trials is a negative study that allows women to omit axillary lymph node dissection if they have positive sentinel lymph nodes. One of these trials is a post-marketing commitment that justifies keeping pertuzumab on the market in the adjuvant setting. And one of these trials is the regulatory approval for neratinib. So two of these trials bring a drug on market, and one of these trials takes away a surgery. Can anyone tell me which trial is which just by looking at it? I think it's very difficult. I think I would have guessed that this was the negative trial because I think these curves look most on top of each other, but actually this is the negative trial over here. Um, I think we have something challenging in breast cancer, that the benefits we're striving to achieve for $10,000 a month drugs are the same differences we're willing to, you know, like give up to like avoid a surgery. There's some sort of contradiction going on between these studies. But um, these are both excellent points that the follow-up data for neratinib shows that, you know, there's some challenges with the follow-up data. Uh, one thing is that 25% of the data is missing uh, because that study was only run as a two-year study. And when you have that level of missing data, um, some of us get very concerned that the people who are missing are not the, again, not the average person in the study, but people who are probably sicker or something may have happened to them. Um, so you should always take up the grain of salt with that amount of missing, you know, you just simply don't know what happened to a quarter of the women on that study. But the point here is that, yeah, in subgroup analysis, it looked like um, one subgroup had more of the benefit than the other, um, but nevertheless, it's being used more widely than that. And I think we deserve better. Um, and this is the point I'm going to make with this, this thought experiment. Here's a thought experiment. Uh, the other day I was looking in my kitchen cupboard, and there were many, many spices. Um, because my family's originally from India, and when they come visit me, they put spices in there, and I don't know what they are. And I don't really use a lot of them, because I don't know what they are, and they just sit there for a while. So I looked in my cupboard, and there are many, many, many spices. Then I had this crazy thought. What if I was a drug maker, and I took every one of these spices, and I put it in the gel cap, and just assume for the sake of argument that none of these spices actually improve cancer outcome? Let's just say they're all inert spices, just for the sake of argument. Um, I know there's different excitement about certain spices, but let's just say the spices in my cupboard don't do anything. Now let's say I packaged every one in a gel cap. 
And for every one of these 100 spices, I ran a randomized clinical trial giving it to women versus placebo, and I asked, is there a survival benefit from this drug, or is there a PFS benefit from this drug? Um, I could do such studies. It would be very costly to me. How costly would it be? It would be about $22 million a study because these randomized trials are not cheap these days. But a P of 0.05 means that if you accept a one-tailed P of 0.05, for instance, five out of 100 of those trials will be positive by chance alone. But I'll get a few potential false positive drugs to the market if the FDA will only will accept one trial, you know, with no confirmatory study required. Here's what we did. We kind of modeled this idea. We said, let's assume they'll accept one trial with a P of 0.05 and a one-sided p-value for drug approval. And let's assume I'm a drug company and I test totally inert compounds, not spices, but inert compounds that don't do anything for people with cancer, but I run a randomized trial of every single one. I'm going to get some false positives because I'm running so many clinical trials. But what's the break-even point? How much money do I need to earn per false positive to justify funding this portfolio? And that's what we show in this graphic. The answer is about $440 million. If you assume a two-tailed p-value, it's $880 million. But that's still lower than what the average cancer drug makes in the market. In other words, we argue with the current FDA approval standards, with the current bar for approval being one trial, doesn't matter what other trials showed, just get that p-value, with the current cost of running trials and the current profits from these drugs, because they're so, so expensive, a drug company would actually be able to turn a profit testing inert compounds. Now, do I believe they're actually doing that? No. I don't believe they're actually testing inert compounds. But what I do believe is that's why so many drugs are so marginal, because they don't have any incentive to chase great compounds. They can turn a profit by chasing the most marginal compounds. And if you can turn a profit chasing the most marginal drugs that, you know, we said we deserve better, if you can turn a profit chasing drugs like that, you're going to do it because you're making money from doing it. And that's why we see 1,500 clinical trials of PD-1 inhibitors in combination with anything under the sun. That's why we see redundant, duplicative, me-too drug portfolios, the same drugs, cookie-cutter drugs in every different company running these trials when we know the drugs work modestly or marginally. We see all this behavior in the market because it is profitable for that behavior. We have incentivized bad behavior. I call it this. U.S. drug regulation allows companies to make billions of dollars from toxic marginal products. If you buy your child a BMW for every D-plus on their report card, what incentive do they have to strive for A's? You're giving your kid a BMW, Ferrari, every D-plus. There's no incentive to get an A. And that's what we're doing. We're giving drug companies Ferraris, many, many Ferraris. I wish it were Ferraris, something much more expensive than a Ferrari, um, uh, for D-pluses. And, you know, that's... That's the problem. Okay, so I'm coming to solutions. Yeah. I think overall survival in randomized control trials has to be the default endpoint. Default means not doesn't mean there's no exceptions. There will always be exceptions. You know, there are many, many conditions where there's really nothing good and they, the, the treatments are very dire um, and there are just no options. And in those cases, you know, we, we should allow surrogate endpoints. I mean, we need to, you know, allow that. Um, but, but for many conditions where there are, go not good, but they're decent drugs, they've been on the market for a while, you need to show these new drugs that get a lot of hype um, are really better than those decent drugs we already have on the market. And to do that, you need to do a randomized trial that shows overall survival. What that means is the drug industry will do more trials for people with 
relapsed cancer than frontline cancer, because that's just sort of the rational result of that. It will be quicker to do that. But that means that people whose cancers are progressing will probably get, you know, more of the options there. And the drugs that come to market are going to be drugs that improve survival. And, you know, this should be the rule, not the exception. It shouldn't be a third of drugs that are OS. It should be like 85% and 15% maybe surrogate, something like that. That's a better, better system. Drugs should first be tested in relapse refractory setting and then gradually move forward, permitting crossover to those drugs. What do I mean by that? Um, the fastest way to bring a drug to market is run a randomized trial in people who have progressed on multiple lines of therapy. So women in the third line of breast cancer, um, uh, men and women with colorectal cancer in the second or third line, randomized trials testing the best standard of care against a new drug with OS as the endpoint. That's a very, very fast way. Um, we, in the next few months, we're going to publish a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine that actually will kind of really strengthen this argument, but, you know, because of all these kind of rules, I, I won't tell you too much about that. Okay, we need to set a minimum benefit requirement. You know, when you want your kid to get an A, you say, I'm going to get you this if you get an A. I'm not going to get you this if you get a D minus, you know? So the FDA has the legal authority to say minimum benefits. If your drug does not improve survival X, it's not coming to market. You can pick that number. We have erlotinib and pancreatic cancer that improves median survival 10 days. 10 days. Now, every day is incredibly valuable, but when you allow somebody to make so much money from a drug that improves survival 10 days, they're not going to be pursuing transformational drugs. They're going to be pursuing more me too 10-day drugs because that's the easiest path to money. You have to incentivize what you want, and that means that's some minimum benefit requirements. And they don't have to be super lofty. It can be two months, one month, something like that, you know, three months. That's still better than the status quo where there is no minimum benefit requirement. Um, I don't think you will see a lot of trials that just fall just short of it and that are very controversial. I think the industry will run smaller clinical trials, smarter trials that are powered to find that benefit, the big benefit. If they don't get the big benefit, they're not going to waste their time, you know, running these 1,000, 4,000-person trials to find statistical slivers of benefit. Uh, we don't want to wait for OS data. This is the question. We hear a lot that surrogates speed drugs to market, but no one can tell me how many months they speed a drug to market. In a few months, we will publish how many months they speed a drug to market, how many months and years, the exact, we've quantified it. And when you see that quantification, you'll see what the trade-off is. Then you can decide for yourself, you know, whether it's worth to wait. Trials must compare new drugs to the best standards of care. This is a very important point. We see trial after trial run for U.S. drug regulation that enroll the majority of patients in Eastern Europe or Asia, um, and there's nothing against Eastern Europe or Asia, but they just simply don't provide the standard of care drugs that they provide in the United States. And so data from those countries may not be informative for United States decisions, and again, that's not a knock on those countries. Those countries do the absolute best job they can with the resources that they have. And I know many physicians from those countries who I would, you know, trust with my life. They're excellent physicians. But the reality is they don't have the resources we have in this country. And you need to bring drugs to market in this country with data that they shows it improves outcomes in this country. Um, so I think we cannot allow trials in global settings with poor post-protocol therapies or straw man control arms. Patients in trials have to look like U.S. patients, the same age, the same demographics. We didn't talk about ethnicity and race, but that clearly matters, too. Um, they need to look as diverse and, um, you know, rich as actual Americans look, um, because we need data for everyone who lives in this country. Um, 
we need to work on this. And it's not enough to relax eligibility criteria. I think the FDA has to really crack uh, a whip. And one of the ways that I would do it is I would start treating overall survival in unrepresentative trials as a surrogate endpoint and make survival in a diverse patient population a post-marketing commitment for drug approval. That's why we call it a new surrogate endpoint. I think I would treat it that way. This is a tougher one. I think we need to eliminate financial conflicts of interest. I, I think that, the, you know, this, this we talk so much about it, um, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. Disclosure is a half measure. Uh, it is, uh, we don't, first of all, we barely do it in medicine, as we, as you can keep reading in the New York Times. Um, star after star, luminary after luminary, apparently thinks it's just simply not important for them to disclose. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Um, I think at last we may finally see some repercussions for people who have just gotten away. Um, and it's not like these are small sums of money being exchanged. Um, as we read, they are often very large sums of money that many of us find difficult that you could forget about. Um, the other challenge here is that drug regulators, they don't have a conflict when they work at the FDA, but their primary source of post-FDA employment is consulting for the industry. And I think that poses a very kind of perverse conflict. This is a paper that we did in BMJ where we show that of drug reviewers at the FDA and Oncology Drug Products Division, 49% stay. But when you go, the most common place you go to is the biopharmaceutical industry, employment, or consulting. And this was all found through public disclosure, like they're voluntarily disclosing this. So some of this 14% probably should also be up in here, I suspect. Um, why do I think this is problematic? If I knew that there was a 27% chance in the future I'm going to work at the University of Pittsburgh, I'm never going to say anything bad about the University of Pittsburgh. I'm probably going to be very nice to people I meet from the University of Pittsburgh. And similarly, when you have drug regulators know there's such a high chance they're going to work for the industry as subsequent employment, often a very nice and lucrative job, I think they do what human beings do, which is they want to play nice and they want to have amicable relationships. And that's great, but when you are a regulator, um, sometimes you need to be very strict and the person you're talking with may not like what you have to say, but, you know, your constituency is the American public and it's not the companies. So we talk about regulatory capture. That literally means that regulators come to see their client as the company and not the American people. And that's so easy and natural because people you talk to I mean, you want to please, we all want to please people we talk to. We don't want to have somebody who we sit across the table with dislike us. And, you know, they're not talking with the American public. They're talking with people who work in the industry who want to get drugs approved. And so I think this is a very perverse and deep, you know, problem that speaks to really human nature. I don't like it when they celebrate the raw number of drug approvals. It really annoys me. And they keep putting out all these things saying, oh, we approved 55 new drugs this year. Because um, the less and less you demand proof that drugs improve survival and quality of life, the more and more you use unvalidated, novel, and tenuous surrogates, you will approve more drugs, pop the champagne, but will people be better off? I don't know. So simply approving drugs doesn't mean you've approved good drugs. Um, the, the kid who's got seven BMWs doesn't mean he got good grades if his parents gave him a BMW for every D+. We need to improve good drugs, and that might be the metric by which regulators judge themselves. So I guess I'm happy to take some questions from everybody. I guess what do I think the themes, the overall themes of the talk are, I wanted to stress that, like, um, response rate and progression-free survival, I mean, they really are intuitively appealing. Um, but the challenge is um, they are arbitrary cutoffs that really poorly correlate with what we care about. 
I think the next thing to talk about is these drugs cost so much, they make so much money, the bar for approval is so low, that you're, we're really incentivizing drug companies to pursue portfolios of very, very marginal compounds. We can't really blame the drug companies. They're like, it's like blaming a tiger for, for killing your household pet when you left it in your house. That's what a tiger does. Why are you leaving it in your house? Why are you giving somebody a multi-billions of dollars from drugs that have never shown OS benefit? You do that, and that's what they're going to keep doing. And then, you know, I mean, it's up to the public. It's up to the regulators to change the bar. Um, have I shared this presentation with FDA representatives? I've argued with, a, I mean, a lot of them. I don't, I don't know if they see this. Um, there are many things one can argue with with them. There's one really clear thing which is the use of something called regular approval rather than accelerated approval. Statutory language says regular approval means a drug is approved unconditionally based on a surrogate endpoint that is established. And then their own data suggests established means strong correlation with survival. And we have documented in a Mayo Clinic Proceedings paper that they do not meet that standard. And so there I think that they are literally not meeting their own stated regulatory standards. That is very problematic. And even on that issue where I think that that's the most egregious example, I feel like there's little incentive to change. Um, I think that the reason it's difficult to change the FDA is that there is, like, one of me, one Joe Ross, one Aaron Kesselheim, like, one Willie Gillette. There's, like, five or six of us who are critical that they need to raise the bar. How many people are say that we should lower the bar? Every single drug company, the commissioner, uh, who used to consult for every single, no, no, not every single, but many drug companies, half of the patient advocacy groups that take most of their funding from drug companies, every person who's lobbies on the Hill, you know, so it's pretty much like five people versus like thousands and thousands of people. So I think, you know, that's why we don't really make much headway. That's a great question. So I think that, um, like, I didn't get to talk about all this, but if you look at all the drugs approved based on a surrogate, half of them are accelerated, but the other half are regular approval. The accelerated approvals have post-marketing commitments, but often the post-marketing commitment is for a different surrogate, not survival quality of life. So I'd say, like, the two easy fixes for the FDA are, one, every surrogate approval, if it's not an established surrogate, meaning that R squared is not over 0.85, it's not, and most of these are not established surrogates, every, almost every surrogate approval should be accelerated, and all the post-marketing commitments should be survival. And then you've solved, like, 90% of the problem. Now, the real-world data, it sounds good, and I've used the real-world data to make a point about serafinib. Um, but here's the challenge with real-world data. Um, when new drugs come out and you want to look at, like, do they actually improve survival in the real world, all of the kind of biases that exist will inflate the potential benefit of a drug, even an ineffective drug. What do I mean? Um, like... Who will be the first people who get the drug? It'll be people who are, like, wealthier with more access on average, um, people who have more slow-growing tumors because they're healthy to get the drug, those kinds of things. Stacey Dusitzina and Hannah Sanoff are very impartial people, non-conflicted people. They did a very careful propensity score matched analysis. You can do the real-world analysis of the drug on the market. It won't always be a Stacey, Stacey and Hannah. It can be uh, anybody. And then anybody may have a con conflict or another motive, and there are many ways in which you can pick and choose your control groups and distort the outcome. But I think what the real-world data will do is it'll be kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. People will find what they want to find in it, and not very few people will do it as thoughtfully as these authors did. Um, so I think, I guess, 
it's not randomized. The decision to give a treatment will be up to the doctor. That creates something called confounding by indication, that doctors are not giving treatments out willy-nilly or randomly. They're giving it based on their judgment. And that judgment often includes things like how slow-growing is the tumor and things like that, which may give you a false inference about the therapy. So the FDA's job right now is to determine whether a drug is safe and whether it does what it says it will do effective. It does not compare efficacy. That's not the role. Um, it doesn't make value judgments. Is that what we want a government agency to do? Well, I guess I would say a few things. So one, um, their job is to ensure safety uh, insofar as they can pre-market because true safety is only known when you give a drug to like tens of thousands of people. You find like low-frequency safety signals. They have statutory authority to enforce efficacy. Efficacy means that a new drug is better than all standard of care therapy in the nation. You can't test your new drug against placebo because that would be unethical to deprive a human being of standard of care in the, in the nation. And yet, the FDA has not enforced that standard. They allow many regulatory trials to be run in parts of the world where standard of care does not resemble the U.S. standard of care. People get a subpar standard of care. That could, they could draw the line and say those trials are illegal for U.S. drug approval. We will not accept that. They, that fails to meet even basic efficacy standards. They do not have comparative effectiveness authority, so they cannot ask two companies making rival PD-1 drugs to test them head-to-head. -head. I want them to have that authority, but that will require legislation. I think they should have that authority. It will require legislation. They don't make value judgments, like they don't consider the cost of the drug. But at the same time, they can establish minimum benefit requirements. They don't have to accept a drug with no, you know, the most marginal benefit. They don't have to accept drugs that have one positive and one negative trial. See, when we have one positive, one negative trial, is the conclusion that the drug works? I think that's possible. The other conclusion is the drug got lucky in one trial and it actually doesn't work. And I think in this particular case, that's the actual conclusion. Um, of sunitinib in adjuvant kidney cancer probably doesn't make people better off. The quality of life is worse, and the DFS is positive in one trial, negative in the other, and OS is negative in both trials. So I think that, like, nobody – I mean, I don't want the FDA to do things that are not within their statutory control, but using surrogates and regular approval that are only established – um, making more surrogates accelerated approval, more post-marketing commitment survival, um, and demanding drugs show efficacy in the U.S. setting, um, that is within their current legal authority, and they have chosen not to enforce any of those things, because if you enforce those things, you wouldn't be able to say, we approve 48 new drugs this year, or whatever the number is. Assuming you do not want to work at the FDA in the future, have you shared this, President Erbstein? So, I, um, oh, wait, I think I kind of talked about that, but while we're working at the FDA in the future, um, you know, I think it's a it's a it's a tough thing. I, I certainly um, think that you know you're you're uh, we'll always have critics on both sides at the FDA, um, but I think that the side of that saying the bar is too low is the right side. But um, so you know, um, how do we change the bar? I think um, they they're they're under no pressure to raise the bar. I mean, I think there are very few voices saying that. I think to study the issue and to see what they can do, the FDA needs to be completely revamped. Is there something legislatively that might be possible? Yeah, I would say a few things. One, they should have comparative effectiveness authority so that they can actually take all these Me Too drugs in the pipeline and demand that there's a master protocol that tests them all against each other. We have Nevo, Pembro, Atezo, Derva, uh, Avelumab, uh, and many, many more coming. Which is the best one? Are they the same? Are they interchangeable? Nobody knows, and we'll never know. We have 1,500 clinical trials of these drugs. Not a single one is testing them head-to-head. -head. Uh, it's madness. Um, but that's something they need legislative authority to do. There's another thing I would say if I'm going to get in the legislative world. I would say we currently have a system where drug companies, they design, conduct, 
run the trial, write the manuscript, and get some big-name person to put their name on the manuscript. But they have it. It's all like written by medical writer. It says at the bottom of the paper. Um, then they take that data, and they go to the FDA, and they bring $2.6 million user fee, or some millions of dollars. They give the money to the FDA, and they give the data and say, will you approve this drug? That's the current system. I think there's a better system. The better system would be you go to the FDA with the compound, the phase two data, and then you give them, instead of, instead of 2.6 million, you give them 22.6 million. And then you say something like, you design, conduct, and run the trial using CROs and non-conflicted experts to design the trial. And the moment the DSMB calls you on the phone and says the trial is positive, you approve the drug. There's no need to review it because you've designed the trial. The fundamental problem in this space is that as long as you allow a manufacturer the ability to design and conduct the clinical trial, they will always find a way to cheat because the reward for them is billions of dollars and the penalty is zero. They get zero dollars if they lose. They have every incentive to pick the most favorable control arm, patient population, trial design. They have no incentive to answer public health questions. We do not need a system where the person who paints the painting is the judge of the painting contest. We need a system where the impartial person is the judge. And so I think if you really wanted to legislatively fix this, you'll create. And the other thing I'd say is we spend $1 trillion a year at the federal level on health care. We spend $30 billion on all research, including trials. That ratio is crazy when you consider that maybe a third of all health care has no clear data. We should spend 5% of health care budgets on testing what works and what doesn't work in a large, non-conflicted trials agenda. So these are the real, like, 50-year horizon public health reforms that it's in, I mean, it's not even, it's inevitable that society will someday see that this is the only wise way. But, so I think that that will happen legislatively in the future. So I think that's a great question. I guess I just want to point out there's two pieces of hypocrisy to people who keep saying market forces will save us. One, um, all of these drug products are protected by patent law, which is a form of regulation. It is a government-granted monopoly that prevents people in a free market from making the exact same compound and selling it, underselling you. Um, that patent regulation is regulation of a, of a laissez-faire free market economy that is imposed by government, but that's the one piece of reg regulation that none of these proponents of the free market ever want to do away with. In fact, they want to expand those. The second right. thing um, is um, about the market forces is that um, ironically, there were some names floated for FDA commissioner who were really held rather um, bizarre views. They felt that the FDA should not do anything, just uh, let drugs come to market and have a Yelp for drugs, I think one of them said. Just like Yelp, you would just take whatever drugs that come to market and you'll fill out your review on Yelp and that would be a better system, said this one guy whose name was floated uh, for the commissioner position. I guess I would say that's a ludicrous position because we know that the result would be many, many drugs that harm a lot of people and that probably don't benefit them. But the current regulatory system is interesting. Um, there is some regulation to come to market, but it's not always improving survival or quality of life to come to market. This is a world that actually is the best thing you could have for a for-profit entity, a pharmaceutical company. Because if there's no regulation at all, anybody fly-by-night person can sell anything on the market and the price of medications will plummet. Because people will be selling all things and nobody will know what works and what doesn't, and the prices will fall. But if you create some artificial barrier to market entry, you can raise prices as high as you want, but that barrier can't be so high to have to actually demand the drugs actually improve survival and quality of life. We're in the sweet spot for profits, I think. And I think that's why the regulatory state has fallen where it is. Um, like, I mean, 
I'm not opposed to the market. I like the market for one reason, which is that markets and profit motivate people to work very, very hard and often harder than they would otherwise work. But the other thing to point out about healthcare is a lot of people work very, very hard because they legitimately want to, like, make an impact on these diseases. So the profit motive is fair, for sure, but there's also this, like, I really want to change this disease because I care about that. Um, mm -hmm. But the purpose of the regulatory state is to align the profit motive with the public good. Right now, we have a deviation. It's not 100% the opposite direction. Like, you know, we're not making drugs that are just terrible, but it's not 100% aligned. And the more we align it through regulation, the better we'd be. And we would align it more by demanding the right endpoints, the right trials, the right patient population, enforcing post-marketing commitments. You may have fewer drugs, but the more you align those arrows, I think, the better off we'd be. That requires, I think, a commitment um, uh, from the public. And I think that there are a lot of people making a lot of money right now who are just don't want to give that up, and that's the real barrier. The people who make a lot of money are very vocal and powerful, and they know how to exert their influence. Yeah, I guess I've been heartened to see that both ASCO and ESMO, the American and European Society, have put out these guidelines, and I agree that they're actually trying to set some minimum standards. So I think that that could be used by regulators um, to set some minimum bars for drug approval, um, and that's a good that's a good line of attack. But I guess as long as professional societies do it, it doesn't have the same impact as if the regulator does. Um, if you want to achieve change and get doctors to do it, you need to sever their financial conflicts. And it's not that, you know, so much blame goes to the average doctor who goes to a drug dinner here or there. And I don't like that either. But, okay, that's not the thing that bothers me the most. What bothers me the most is... Every person, not every person, but the majority of people in senior leadership who are the thought leaders in specific diseases, who write the guidelines that mandate Medicare to pay for off-label drug use, the NCCN guidelines, 85% of those people have financial ties to the drug company. They're getting paid for consulting, for all these sorts of things. The thing they say in response to that we need to curb this is, well, don't you want academics to collaborate with drug companies? I say absolutely collaborate with drug companies. The drug company can give money to the university, and the university can run a trial. But how does that justify you consulting for them and taking $50,000 a year? For instance, I collaborate with many medical students. We've published maybe 20 articles a year. But not a single student has ever given me $10,000 for an hour of my time. That's considered a part of my job, just like it's a part of the job of these trialists to work with the industry and not take a horrendous amount of money from them. Um, you will, they will not speak up until you cut that tie. And in fact, their own mind may not even understand the issue because, you know, we all find a way in our mind to justify our own behavior as, you know, we are always ethical. I don't, I think probably almost nobody thinks they're behaving unethically in any situation. And I think these people are no different. They don't believe it's unethical. Everyone else is doing it. In fact, it's a marker of success how much money you take. See, I've had students tell me they admire the doctors who take the most money. They aspire to be that doctor. I choke on my coffee that, uh, when I hear such a thing, and, and then I'm supposed to contain myself. But, I, you know, this is what we've incentivized the student to chase these kind of dreams, to be this doctor flying around the world on first-class jets and consulting, make all this money. This is, this is ridiculous. Um, if it was a judge in a courtroom, you would not accept one side paying them so much money. You would not accept it at all. You wouldn't need any studies. You don't want the defense bribing the judge. 
And that's what this is, because doctors are the judge, jury, and executioner of the interpretation of clinical trials. I mean, patients shape it too, but, and patient advocates shape it too, but expert doctors shape it a great deal. And the industry knows that. I think that's why they realize that $10,000 to a thought leader probably has a tenfold return on investment, because it gets a lot of people who listen to this thought leader to use the product. I think these ties need to end. The disclosure is a um, blunt instrument. Um, in fact, there's some studies that suggest that if somebody discloses their conflict, you trust them more because you feel like, well, they're honest enough to disclose. So it can even, quote, unquote, backfire. The real solution is not disclosure. What if the judge said, oh, the defense is paying me money, so I'm going to, you know, rule, rule this motion in favor of the defense. The disclosure is not the issue. It's the divestment. It needs to be severed. Um, and that doesn't mean don't collaborate. You can still collaborate, but you don't have to stuff money in a pocket to collaborate. That's a distinction that I think they are quick to, uh, you know, obfuscate. So right now the question is, I mean, I think there's people believe that it's acceptable behavior and then the, the crime is not disclosing. But I think we need to change that whole thinking. It should be not acceptable. I think any reasonable person would conclude that if you are writing the guidelines that determine whether a $100,000 a year drug is used off-label in the absence of randomized trials based on gray zone data, you should not be receiving tens of thousands of dollars in payment from that company. That you should, that, that judge should not have such a conflict. I think that's a reason, that's a principle that probably goes back to like 4000 BC in human civilization. Uh, that, a, a, that a judge, you know, for, in 4000 BC, if the defendant found that, they would say it was a sham trial. And yet we can, we accept that behavior now. And we've written a paper called Closed Financial Loops. Um, how if this happens in politics, it's called corruption, but if it happens in medicine, it's just a footnote in the Hastings Center. And our argument there was the reason I think doctors get away with it is that medicine is still a highly respected profession, um, and politicians are not. So politicians would be crucified for the same thing a doctor can get away with, but that's just because the, the relationship is problematic in both cases. It's just our attitudes toward it are different. We give doctors the benefit of the doubt because, after all, they want to cure disease. But just because you want to cure disease doesn't mean you are above the human tendencies to be biased and conflicted. Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I would say a few things about that. Like, why do they correlate poorly? The truth is, I don't know the full reason. I haven't explained it. But uh, I have some ideas. What are my ideas? One, I think, um, one, we can't forget that the threshold for progression is very arbitrary. That's one thing. It's not, the, the cutoffs are picked at random. Two, if somebody is measuring progression and they're not blinded or they have unblinded themselves, they can insert a little bit of bias because if you suspect the patient is getting the active treatment, you'll say, eh, it's not, it hasn't progressed yet. Let's keep them on the drug. If it has progressed, you know, you can, there's a little bit of bias there. The next thing I'd say is, you know, I wish we could, like, allow people to try to measure these scans. What if you could, like, you know, get, um, with the permission of one person, get a few images, right? And then create, like, a web app where people can measure it themselves and just, like, let people measure it. You will see measuring these things is not like measuring your height. When I measure, if I measure your height, have you stand against the wall, draw a line, and we all measure the height, we're all going to get within, what, one centimeter, probably? If I had us all measure the tumor, we're going to get different measurements. And Ian Tannock gave the same tumors to, like, ten people, and he proved this in a paper. They all got very different measurements. Because it's not, it's fuzzy, it's difficult. You don't always know where the tumor ends and the vessel begins and, the, you know, those kinds of things. It's an imperfect science measuring the cat. The cat scans are still grainy. The other thing, we do scans in trials, like every six weeks or eight weeks or something like that. 
We do scans in the real world often less frequently. The one thing providers often tell me is, you know, you tell me progression doesn't correlate, but when my patients progress, they don't do so well. And then I tried to figure out, like, why is there this discrepancy? And I'm like, well, oh, you're not doing your scans every six weeks within two days. You're doing your scans when, you know, every three months or four months. So when your person progresses, it's not 121%. It may be 340%. It's really different. And so your, your experience with patients is different than the trial. And then somebody once told me that, like, if uh, this person worked a lot on clinical trials and, like, adjudicating the endpoints, and this person told me that if you ever got to see how, like, the sausage is made, you'd have a lot less faith in what we're measuring because there's all this kind of noise in the system. And so I think that's part of it. The other part of it is is that, like, sometimes, um, you know, if you're taking four drugs in a row, delaying the first progression when the other progressions come more frequently you know, that may not really improve survival over having, like, four drugs where we spread those progressions apart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not intuitively obvious to me that, like, 18 months, then the first progression, but then three progressions in a row, uh, that's better than just four progressions spread out over time. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. That's a personal preference, quality of life question. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking, what could be, be better, what topics could we cover, Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.